Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Edward Watts. He's presently the Vasiliadis Professor uh, of Byzantine Greek History at UC San Diego, where he was formerly co-director of the Center for Hellenic Studies. His research interests center on the intellectual and religious history of the Roman Empire and the early Byzantine Empire. He is the author of several books on ancient history, the most recent one being Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny, and he also has a new book coming out in 2021, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea, and we're going to focus on uh, mortal republic today so dr watts thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show it's a pleasure to everyone thank you so much i'm really really excited to be here okay great so i, I mean I, I have to be honest here i don't have that many historians on the show usually so <laughs> i guess that there are some basic questions that i will have to ask you because history is not one of the subjects I get into often, but uh, so let's see. Let's see how it goes. Uh, in your book, you talk about Rome, and you go through several of the uh, through the several different phases. Let's say that it went through. Like for example, first it was a kingdom, then a republic, then an empire. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, uh, about the Kingdom of Rome. Uh, how was it organized? The kingdom is an interesting thing because it's set up, there is a king and the king reigns for his entire life. But the monarchy, at least as it's described to us, isn't a hereditary monarchy. It's an elected monarchy. Oh. Uh, and so in Rome, there is this uh, group of people that's a hereditary aristocracy that's called the patricians. Uh, and when a king dies, the patricians come together and they have a, a institution called the interregnum where member, the leading member of each of the patrician families, in a sense, auditions to be king. And so they, they serve as king for a little while. I think it's about a week. Uh, and then someone else takes over. And then eventually, after everybody's kind of auditioned, they, they vote to determine who it is who should take power as the next king. And that person then reigns as king until they die. And then you go through the exercise again. Uh, and so the Roman tradition says that there were only five kings who served this way. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense because those five kings supposedly reigned for almost 200 years together. Uh, and that in a primitive society like early Rome, there's just no way that you could even string together five people who would live long enough to serve that amount of time. So we don't exactly know how this works, but we can say for sure that this is not absolute monarchy. This is instead something where the patricians are choosing the person who's going to represent their interests. Uh, and that person is accountable to the patricians. Mm -hmm. And so when the monarchy starts, it is this kind of patrician dominated institution, but the king is always answerable to somebody and there's always a check on his power. Um, and by the time you get to the second to the last king, uh, you have a revolution that changes this dynamic. And so that King Servius Tullius takes power by, in essence, um, running, not going through the interregnum at all. Uh, instead, the previous king 
dies, they cover up the fact that he has died. And Servius Tullius uses the power of um, basically an, a rising upper middle class to reorganize the state and shift power away from patricians to a assembly of basically people um, selected to vote based on their wealth. Uh, and so you shift from a hereditary aristocracy to a kind of economic um, oligarchy in a way. Uh, and Servius Tullius is still answerable, but he's answerable to not the patricians, but to this assembly of wealthy people. Um, and this is this is a really significant shift in the way the monarchy works um, because the monarch still is answerable. He's still not an absolute ruler, but the patricians have now been kind of blocked out from this process of deliberation and accountability. Uh, and so there's a tension now in the way the monarchy works um, because the monarch has kind of shifted the system and the number and the sort of people that he's um, needs to be responsive to. Yeah, uh, these patricians, well, I, I mean, what did they correspond to in terms of the social organization? I mean, were they composed by people that were more influential, let's say, people from the several different social strata? I mean, how, how did it work exactly? So I think this is what's really, um, it's really important for us to understand this because it isn't how we naturally, especially in the United States, think about yeah. things. So this is a hereditary aristocracy. Uh -huh. um, and so these people come from families that are patrician families. And the only thing that determines whether you're a patrician or not is what your family background is. Okay. Uh, and so there are rich patricians, there are poor patricians. I don't think there are any poor patricians, um, but this is a, a sort of aristocracy that's based on heredity. Yeah. Uh, and so therefore there are going to be rich and powerful people in Roman society who are not patricians. And as the state gets more sophisticated, and as you move into the sixth century BC, more and more people who are not patricians are becoming important. And so this creates an imbalance in the society where hereditary aristocracy doesn't track with actual influence in the state. Uh, and that is destabilizing um, because you have people who are becoming more and more important in the functioning of the state who don't feel like their interests are effectively being represented by the constitutional system. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about this kingdom, I mean, what did it include? Was it simply what we nowadays would call the city of Rome, or was it also composed of other parts of Italy or elsewhere? Yeah, this is when um, our stories get a little tricky, okay. uh, because we have stories that say, you know, the first king is Romulus, and this is what he did. Um, the second king, uh, you know, extends law laws to Rome and extends Rome so that it's now controls more of the hills of what's now the city of Rome. And so the, the story tells us that each of the kings are gradually expanding the city. Um, we have other evidence that shows that it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Uh, the city of Rome actually didn't develop because kings went and conquered the neighboring hill. Um, it developed because the size of the settlements grew to such a degree that the settlements moved down the hill and they all kind of merged into each other. Uh, and so the stories we have is uh, tell of the kings conquering more and more territory. Uh, and it is clear that Rome is expanding under the kings. 
Um, and it is clear that Rome is conquering territory under the kings, but it's very hard to say exactly how that's happening. Um, by the time the monarchy falls in 509 BC, I think we can say that Rome is, um, it's the dominant force in central, Western central Italy, right? It's, so it's a, I think if we think of like Lazio right now, we can probably with some confidence say, basically the area of Lazio, this is, this is kind of where we are by the time the monarchy falls. Uh, and so Rome is a powerful regional uh, city state in an area that is kind of peripheral to all of the action in the Mediterranean. Um, it's very hard for us to think of this, uh, but Italy in, in the sixth century BC is backwards, um, especially compared to Greece or uh, especially the Eastern Mediterranean, places like Egypt, um, where Egypt has been civilized and urbanized for 3,000 years. And Rome is basically like just starting to do that. Um, and so the fact that Rome is a powerful state in central Italy, in the scheme of things, means very little. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what is the time frame that we are talking about here for the kingdom of Rome? I mean, when did it start and when did it end? Uh, historically, the way Romans count this, they say their city started in 753 BC. They have an exact day. You know, like It started on this day in 753 BC. That, of course, isn't accurate. Um, but it's more or less right. You know, the archaeological remains on the Palatine suggest that probably, yeah, people started building um, and permanently inhabiting the Palatine in the 8th century BC, more or less. Um, and the date of 509 BC for the fall of the monarchy, I think people generally are pretty comfortable with that. Um, because at that point, we are at a moment where Romans are keeping annual records of what's going on. Uh, and so I think we're talking about something on the order of 250 to 300 years when Rome is a monarchy um, in an organized sense. Uh, obviously, the story we have is a lot more tidy than what actually is going on. Um, because Romans tell the story of Rome's monarchy in a way that emphasizes a lot of the attributes of what they think being Roman is. Uh, and so we have a very neat and tidy story of the monarchy. The reality is certainly more messy. But I think the timeline, generally speaking, of you know 250 or 300 years of a monarchy is probably about right. Mm -hmm. And how was the society in general organized? I mean, it was, of course, uh, based on agriculture, right? But then in terms of the social strata, were there uh, different social strata? I mean, I mean, in terms of uh, having, for example, as you said, a monarchy and then uh, different social strata until we reach the poor people or not? Yeah, no, we definitely see that. And the interesting thing is when Servius Tullius changes the way this state works, he institutes a census where you rank everybody based on their property qualifications. Oh. And we actually have the results of that preserved because this is a structure that um, the assembly he creates continues to operate even under the Republic. It actually continues to operate even under the Emperor Augustus. Uh, and so we know more or less how that worked. And you can see all the gradations in the society. You can also see that poor people um, in any context have less of a voice than rich people. 
And the question is just what are you doing at the top? Because the people at the top are really the people who are most important in making decisions. And so poor people have a voice. It's just not a very big one. Uh, and that's certainly true under the patrician dominated early kings. Um, it's also true under the sort of uh, wealth structure uh, that the later kings used to, con to control the state and interact with the state. So poor people, uh, I think we have to understand, are always at the margins. Mm -hmm. uh, no one is making an effort to incorporate the voices of poor people, uh, especially under the monarchy, but also I think we'll see under the republic too. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so the monarchy falls. What happens next? So the monarchy falls uh, in 509 BC. And what you have actually initially is a patrician counter-revolution. So we have to understand what Servius Tullius did as a, a kind of revolution by um, economic interests against hereditary aristocracy. And he creates a structure where Uh, your wealth determines your voice in the state, and this dispossesses patricians. Now, many patricians are still wealthy enough that they figure into this, but they don't have exclusive control over how the discussions proceed. And so the, the counter-revolution that overthrows the monarchy is a patrician-led counter-revolution that says, in essence, we don't need a king anymore, and all decisions are, again, going to be made by patricians, but they're not going to elect a king. Uh, instead, they're going to elect magistrates who are answerable to the patricians. Uh, and so this initial sort of push in 509 uh, is met ultimately with a reaction by the people who used to be, the rich people who used to be authoritative under the late kings, but are not patricians. And what you get by the time you get to the late 490s BC is a republic where wealthy interests have a way to express their, their needs and their concerns um, through an assembly that is made up only of non-patricians. So these are, these are called plebeians. And the patricians have their own sort of magistrate structure. And these two entities, the assembly of the plebeians and the patrician-dominated magistrates, now interact with each other. And so there is a a kind of crude balance of power in the state where both of the interests that had been directing policy at different times under the monarchy now have the capacity to do this, a direct policy and have conversations with each other. And so this is the very basic sort of structure of the Republic. Um, the two vested interests in the way the monarchy functions now each have a voice in a structure and there's no monarch who can kind of play one against the other. Yeah, so the Republic starts officially in the 490s BC, is that it? So officially it starts in 509 BC, but as it starts, it is just patricians who run the thing. Uh, and eventually plebeians, wealthy plebeians, um, who had power under the later kings and now don't have power at all, do something that's called the secession of the plebs where they effectively walk out of the city. Uh, and because you have both poor people who are required to do manual labor and other things, and also rich people who have a lot of capital to make the city work, this is something patricians can't accept. I mean, they can't run this, they can't run the city without plebeians there. And so there's a negotiation where the patricians acknowledge the plebeians should have a decision-making capacity. 
And for the next 200 years, the Republic spends a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how this will work. You know, what offices should be exclusively patrician? What offices should be exclusively plebeian? And over these 200 years, eventually the Republic comes to this uh, consensus that everything should be open more or less to everyone. Um, and that plebeians and patricians should be eligible for nearly all offices. Um, plebeians should have their own assembly. They should have their own representatives who can protect plebeians if there is patrician overreach. Uh, and you come to a, a much more sophisticated political structure that's still based on this principle of um, you rotate people through offices so you never again have a monarch who can play people off against each other. And you also have the interests of both groups being spoken for in a way that's constitutionally defined so that nobody can legally take advantage of each other. Uh, and also built into this is this idea of compromise and consensus um, that in 490 could have um, the walkout of the plebs could have been another violent revolution. And instead, what you have is a negotiation. Uh, and this becomes the principle that the Republic works under is, you know, if you have a political conflict, it should not be resolved violently. It should be resolved through compromise and consensus in a way that makes society stronger. And everybody then buys into the, the result. Um, but violence is something that undercuts the, the ability of society to come together. Um, and so this is the sort of the basic principles for what the Republic will be are kind of laid down in this first 20 years. Uh, but, but those principles develop into a much more sophisticated system um, that builds off of these basic ideas uh, but creates something that is much more dynamic and much more sophisticated than the early Republic was. Mm -hmm. Was this the first Republic in Western history, at least, or, or were there others? And what about other parts of the world? It's interesting because this is the first one that works exactly in this fashion. Mm -hmm. um, Sparta has a mixed constitution. Uh, but it has kings. Um, Athens is not a republic, it's a, it's a democracy. And so in a republic, the idea is that everybody has a voice, but different people have more of a voice, depending on their, their role in society. Uh, and so your voice is represented by somebody, and the degree to which they need to listen to you depends on your status in the, in the society. Um, we hear a little bit about how Carthage is governed. And it seems Carthage has something like this. It has different assemblies, it has different, different magistrates who are elected in different fashions. Um, we don't know exactly how the Carthaginian constitution worked. Uh, it is probably in some ways similar to what's going on in Rome, but in other ways, I think it is very different. And the ideas of how Carthage should operate um, and, and what we know about how, say, Carthage runs its society, it is different from Rome. Um, but I think with Rome, what you have is a, a, a system that evolves and you also have Romans talking about how it works. Um, and you have Romans saying like this theoretically is how our state works. And in practice, we measure up to what the theory is. So in the Greek world, for example, you have Plato lay out a Republic, you know, in Latin, you, you would translate Plato's politeia as res publica or, or Republic. Um, But Plato is theorizing this state, and it has a lot to do with how Sparta works, but it also is a theoretical state, 
with balances of power. Um, and in Rome, what Romans say is Greeks theorized about this, but we did it. Uh, so when you read Cicero's Republic, he starts by saying, yeah, Greeks, you know, they have great ideas about how to run a state, but they just think it. They don't do it versus we did it. And now we look and we see what pattern we've established and we realize the pattern is great, but it wasn't theoretically um, something that we thought up and then implemented. We implemented it and now we look back and say it fits this theory. Um, and so I think in that sense, Romans are, are relatively unique. The structure they created um, and the ability of this state to expand and incorporate new people is something that you don't see anywhere else in antiquity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So how did the voting system in the Republic work? And what were the people that could vote? So there are a number of assemblies um, yeah. there. And so in those assemblies, uh, three of them tally the votes based on the tribe people live in. And so there's eventually 35 tribes that all Roman citizens belong to. Um, four of those are based in the city of Rome. The other 31 are based in the countryside. And the number of tribes increases as Roman territory increases. But these are voting tribes. They're not, you know, based on genealogy or anything else. Um, and so because they're voting tribes, what Romans do is they tally the number of votes uh, for an election or for a, a decision based on how many tribes vote for it. And so all of the vote tallying is out of 35 for these assemblies. Uh, and what would happen is the tribes would come together and they would um, all vote within their tribe and then they would say tribe, you know, number six votes, yes. Um, but what effectively happened was the four tribes in the city of Rome would have more votes all the time because voting had to be done in person and it had to be done on site in the city of Rome. Uh, and so the 35 tribes would have, you know, maybe potentially 10,000 people voting in each of those four urban tribes and then maybe 500 voting in the rural tribes uh, and the 500 voting in the rural tribes would almost always be wealthier because they're people who can take time off from whatever it is that's going on to come to Rome and vote. And so what you have there is a structure where the voting, um, the voice that people have is disproportionate depending on probably how much money they have and how much capacity they have to actually come to the city and vote. And that's actually seen as a feature of the way the Republic should work. Uh, Romans liked the fact that it did this. Um, but the other thing that's interesting about this is every Roman voted individually. Mm -hmm. So in Athens, we know that voting was done by people raising their hands. And so you would assemble in the, in the Pnyx, uh, you'd assemble in this massive space, they would propose something, you would debate it, and then people would raise their hands saying whether they're in favor or opposed. Then you would just count the hands. And so you vote as part of this mass. Um, and in Rome, you as an individual go and you cast your vote verbally initially. And then after the second century or in the middle of the second century, you use actual um, secret ballots. But you as an individual go forward and you cast your vote. And so there's this strange thing where in Athens, everyone's vote counts equally. And so everyone casts their vote as, as a part of a larger body. In Rome, everybody's vote counts differently, 
but you cast your vote as an individual so that you're physically participating as an individual in this vote. And that symbolically is really important because it says to Romans, in essence, yes, your vote doesn't matter as much as someone else, but your participation matters. Like your individual participation in this says that you agree to be part of the Republic. You agree that you are lending your voice to the decision that's being made. And this creates a significant amount of legitimacy for all of the decisions the Republic takes. Even though a lot of these people, um, their vote doesn't effectively count at all. Um, and it certainly doesn't count as much as a few people who are better off. You still have had your moment of individually going forward and casting that vote. And that is really meaningful in a way um, that keeps this society kind of on track uh, and keeps them sort of comfortable with the way um, their republic is working. Mm -hmm. And what were the things that people voted for? I mean, was it simply to elect certain people or did they also vote uh, on certain subjects that were of interest to everybody? Um, they voted on they voted on magistrates. And so different assemblies would elect different magistrates. And the magistrates could propose laws. Okay. Uh, and so what would happen when they proposed laws is they would uh, propose a, a law. They would then um, call for a public meeting to discuss this. And unlike in Athens, where the public meetings meant anybody could stand up, right? Like the, a fisherman could stand up and talk about military policy. Um, in Rome, that isn't the case. You know, the, the people who propose the laws go and they speak and it's, it's an engaged thing, but it's controlled. Uh, and then the vote would be separate from that. So in Athens, again, the fishermen would talk about public po foreign policy and then everybody would vote. Um, in Rome, you would have this meeting. This meeting would conclude and then the vote would happen later. Uh, and so, you know, so the magistrates that you elected don't just make policy. They propose things and then it goes back to that assembly and that assembly listens to their arguments and then votes on the policy. Um, and so the idea really is, especially in the, the early and middle Republic, that everything a magistrate is doing is um, supposed to be checked back to the people to be sure that the people are actually comfortable with this. And at the end of the magistrate's term, the magistrate had to go before the people and basically defend his conduct. Uh, and so the people then would actually, again, have this check to say, yes, we are comfortable with what happened here. Um, as the Republic gets more sophisticated and it's doing more and more, the ability to, to put decisions back to public votes becomes more and more difficult. But the check is always there. Every magistrate until the end of the Republic still had to go before the people and say, I did this for this reason and kind of defend his conduct because he's accountable to the people he represents. Mm -hmm. Did they have anything like uh, referendums or something like that? I think you would say that um, everything that these people propose, all of the laws that magistrates propose, go back to the people for a vote. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it wouldn't be a referendum in the way like in California, um, we kind of are crazy with our referenda. And so people can decide they want to have a referendum on, on an issue. They will go and get a bunch of people to sign a petition. If they get enough signatures, it gets on the ballot. 
And the people who are elected to represent us have very little say in actually what's going on to the ballot as a referendum. Rome didn't work that way. You know, random people couldn't put together something and, and have people vote on it. Um, but they could work with their magistrates to put together a proposal that would then go to the people and the people would vote on it. And so you do have this capacity. Um, and there are a lot of magistrates who are, of course, going to be willing to listen and bring these things forward. So you do have the capacity to, to bring ideas up and have them voted on by the larger public. But I think the other thing is magistrates alone can't put anything forward. So it's not like um, a parliament where you elect your representatives and the representatives go into parliament and they work together to make laws. And if no one in the country supports that law, the parliament can still put it forward because they represent the people. In Rome, you would work as the representative to craft policies that are broadly supported by, by other representatives. But then eventually that would have to go back to the people for approval for implementation. And so it's not exactly a referendum, but it's also not exactly a, a parliamentary or congressional system where you elect somebody who just does what they do and you don't have a say and you don't have a direct say in what comes out of their actions. Mm -hmm. What were the territories that were part of this Roman Republic? Because it expanded over time, right? It expanded really dramatically over time. So in the 500 years that the Republic is around, give or take, I mean, it ends, um, starts in 509 BC, it ends, depending on where you put it, around 30 BC. Um, and in that time, the Republic starts as basically um, a city-state, you know, something that's maybe, I don't know, the size of San Diego or the New York, New York City. Um, By the time it ends, it controls uh, the entire Mediterranean. Um, it controls all or part of probably over 40 modern countries. Uh, if it were a country now, the Roman Empire, when it becomes an empire, would probably be the third or fourth largest country in the world. Uh, and so the Republic corresponds to this massive growth of Rome. Um, and a lot of the growth happens uh, in the last 200 years of the Republic. But what's interesting is, what's even more interesting is the process that it, under which it expands in Italy. Um, because as Rome expands in Italy, this Republic that starts out as, you know, something that's relatively small with all of its citizens within um, a few kilometers of the city of Rome, expands to make all of Italy citizens. Um, and so all of Italy at that point is everything south of the Po River. It's almost modern Italy. Uh, it's massive. And so um, what Romans do as they expand their control of Italy across the 5th century, 4th century, and into the 3rd century, by 270 BC, they've taken control of all of Italy. They extend Roman citizenship to more and more people in Italy. So more and more people in Italy, even though they can't really get to Rome to vote, um, they have a meaningful connection to the Roman state. Uh, and a republic allows you to do this because every one of these new citizens gets put in a voting tribe. Every one of these new citizens, potentially, if they want to go to Rome and vote, they can do it. Um, most of them never do. But they're meaningfully connected to this society. And no one in antiquity was capable of doing that besides the Romans. Uh, when you look at like the Athenian Empire or the Empire of Alexander the Great or the Persian Empire, these are really empires 
You know, and in the Athenian Empire, Athens made the decisions and the people they governed paid things to Athens and they did what Athens told them to do. But they didn't have a role in voting to make those decisions. Um, in the Empire of Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great ran that and everybody else was subject to Alexander the Great. What the Romans did is they built a kind of imperial structure, but they said to the people they're governing, many of you will be citizens and you have a stake in this. And not only do you have a stake in this, you have a say in how it's going to work. Um, and that's a really significant change from how really most empires in history have worked. Um, you know, it's very hard for us to conceive of, say, the British Empire saying to someone in, in Kenya, yes, you know, elect someone for parliament. You know, you're fully and meaningfully a part of the British state. Um, but this is how the Romans created their empire. Uh, they found people who were willing to participate and eager to participate. And that level of participation expanded across the Republic um, by 90 BC or by 88 BC. Everyone in Italy is a Roman citizen. Um, by 212 AD, everyone in the entire Mediterranean is a Roman citizen. Uh, and the idea of this, this Roman state was um, that people who are subject to the state can become Roman. And this is revolutionary because no one in antiquity thought to do this or even thought it was a good thing to try to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another question is, uh, these different peoples that Rome conquered, uh, did they have at a certain point one single identity? Because we are talking here about citizenship, but, but that uh, isn't really the same as, for example, having a single national identity people from the several different places. Was there something like nationalism there or not? Uh, I mean, the interesting thing is that all of these people have, they accept a Roman identity, but it doesn't make them any, it doesn't take away what they also are. Yeah. Uh, so the law that extends citizenship to everybody in 212 says everyone has citizenship, but your local, everyone has Roman citizenship, but your local citizenship remains intact. Yeah. Um, and so what you have are people who say, I am Roman and I'm Greek, or I am Roman and I'm Spanish, or I am Roman and I'm British. And both of those things coexist, you know, in, in the same way that in, in the United States, um, you're American, but you're also from a particular place. And the fact that you're from California doesn't make you not American, it makes you Californian and American. Um, and this would be the same way that this is working in the Roman state. And you can see this in really interesting ways. Um, the people like in the fourth century, uh, the Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea writes a history of the Roman Empire. He's a Christian bishop. He grew up and lived his entire life in, in what was then the province of Palestine. And he writes a history of the world focused on Roman history and Christian history. And he says that these two things work together. They're not separable, but they're different. And so you are both. And this is, I think, the genius of what the Romans are doing, is they say that, you know, if you're from the city of Cumae, um, you have that citizenship, you have that identity, that is meaningful. We are not taking that away from you, but you're also part of this bigger thing, which is Rome. Um, and you are Roman also. 
Uh, and this is, this is, I think, the genius of what the Romans are able to do. I mean, this is why other societies couldn't make this step. Athens couldn't say that you are Athenian and Delian. They, you were either Athenian or you weren't Athenian. And what Romans did was create this space where you can be Roman, but you can also be Neapolitan. Um, you can be Roman, but you can also be Athenian. You can be Roman, but you can also be Ephesian and Athenian and, you know, a citizen of Caesarea. And all of that space is possible and open to you um, because your Romanness is something that's meaningful to you, but it's also not everything that you are. Uh, and this is why, you know, to get far ahead of ourselves, um, the Roman Empire actually ends not in Italy, but it ends in 1453 when the Turks take Constantinople. And those people who are the Romans who are conquered in Constantinople in 1453 speak Greek. Um, but they call themselves Romawe. They call themselves Romans. And after, their, after the conquest of who we now call the Greeks by the Ottomans, they still call themselves Romans, you know, until Greek independence. Um, and so this is something that shows you the, the great success of that project. People who would be Greek, who we would call Greek, don't call themselves Greek because this Roman identity is so meaningful to them. But it also doesn't mean they're not Greek. Um, and so they identify with the Greek classical past, but they also identify with the Roman past. And both of those things are their heritage and both of those things are completely meaningful to them, um, but they don't see a contradiction. Uh, and so you have a really, really interesting and revolutionary way of thinking about identity under the Romans. Yeah. Uh, and these different peoples, were they allowed to keep their customs, their traditions, or were there some, uh, some things that were prohibited? They're allowed to keep their customs and their traditions. The one thing that changes when you extend uh, legal status to everybody in the empire is local law um, has to conform to Roman law. And so one of the really interesting th things that you see in the aftermath of this is in Egypt, um, Egyptian traditional law, it restricts women in, way that in ways that Roman law doesn't. Um, and Egyptian laws about marriage in some fashions contradict what Roman laws permit. So Egyptian law in this period would permit sisters to marry brothers, for example. Um, that's not permitted under Roman law. And so you see a whole bunch of uh, like litigation where people in Egypt try to figure out, you know, does this property contract still apply because it was made under Egyptian law and now the basic ideas don't exist anymore. Um, and so that's where you see this really having to be negotiated. But customs, no, customs are fine. Uh, and you actually see that over time in the lead up to this, Roman and local Roman law and local customs started to blend. Um, and a great example of this is in Jewish writings where they actually work through, um, in the Mishnah, they work through how Jewish custom can work alongside Roman law uh, and how you can kind of be true to Judaism, but also conform to legal structures that are becoming more and more binding on you. Mm -hmm. So could we say, or could we talk about multiculturalism here? I mean, could we say that the Republic and then the Empire were multicultural? I think in a way. Um, I think that what we, what we can say is that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of acceptance of the fact that you can have multiple ways of doing things. 
And that, this is fine in the Roman context. Um, it doesn't mean that people will say, I think that's a good idea, or I don't think that that's weird, or I respect the fact that you do something strange. Um, so in in the high empire, uh, you see, for example, the emperor Elagabalus, who is one of these, I mean, he's put in the category of bad emperors. Uh, but really what you have there is something where Elagabalus kind of overestimated the Roman tolerance for some eccentric behaviors. Um, so Elagabalus worshipped a sun god that in sort of a way that's consistent with uh, Eastern Mediterranean practices was embodied in a meteorite. And he brought this meteorite to Rome and he wanted everybody in Rome to worship this, this sun god that is a rock. Uh, and a lot of people in Rome said, this is, this is too far. Like, I can't, I can't do this. This is too strange for me. Um, was he legally, I mean, he was emperor, but w would someone have legally been permitted to worship that rock? Of course. But would Romans have said, I understand why you do that? Most Romans didn't understand why you did that. And so you have space for multicultural expression, but you don't actually have a, a modern idea that I respect your difference. Um, Romans would be perfectly comfortable saying what you're doing is legal, but it's really weird. Uh, and we actually do have a lot of Romans who say this is bizarre about various practices that in other cases, people would totally, you know, in their region or in their customs would say are totally fine. Uh, and so I think in one way, legally, we have a kind of multiculturalism. Socially, we have it to a degree, but only to a degree. And nobody would say it's incumbent on you as a member of Roman society to be respectful of everyone's differences. Uh, they wouldn't. Um, they wouldn't be respectful. They would have no problem making fun of something they thought was strange. I mean, they wouldn't think there's any reason to not do it. Uh, but that doesn't mean the society is going to suppress it. Um, and so that's, I think, maybe the limits of an ancient idea that might sort of bump up against the modern idea of multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about a more specific subject now. Why are the Greci brothers, Tiberius and Gaius, so important in Roman history? So when the Republic expands, and especially in the second century, when the Republic starts expanding out of Italy and taking over territory in Greece and in North Africa and in Sicily and in Spain, um, there's a whole lot of money that starts coming into the Republic very quickly. Uh, and what you see is the Republic very quickly develops a sophisticated financial system. Um, and it happens very fast. The Republic, when, um, when it fought Hannibal in the third century BC, had a relatively primitive economy. And 50 years later, it has one of the most sophisticated economies in the Mediterranean. And what that means is economic growth is concentrated in the people who understand how this new economy works. Uh, and this creates a really significant imbalance in a society, a wealth imbalance in a society that isn't really used to dealing with this and relies on consensus to try to solve problems. Uh, and they cannot develop a consensus about how to deal with this wealth inequality fast enough. And so the Gracchi emerge as politicians who want to take advantage of the discontent about this wealth inequality uh, in ways that benefit themselves, 
Uh, and in the case of the first brother, the older brother, Tiberius, he really doesn't even want to solve the problem. He wants to make a statement that the problem should be solved. Uh, and so he does this through intimidation. He does this through um, basically uh, bringing mobs of supporters in to show how much they want people to vote in a certain way when the assemblies are voting on his proposals. Uh, and this attracts a lot of, well, it attracts a lot of anger from people who are not interested in disrupting the social dynamic in that fashion. But what Tiberius is doing is pushing a, a confrontational way to address inequality, um, not so much so that the inequality can be solved, but so that the people will feel like they have a voice that is being respected. And so there is no compromise when what you're doing is dealing in symbolic uh, proposals and symbolic policies. If you're dealing with like how much revenue should go to what group of people, you can compromise on that. But if you're saying in essence, we are really angry because the system is not responsive, there isn't a compromise for that because anger is not something where you can kind of get 75% of the way to a solution. You're angry and you want something done. And that something done is actually in some ways more important if it's done adversarially. And this is what Tiberius understood. Um, but because he was being so aggressively adversarial, his opponents organize a mob against his supporters and they end up assassinating him and killing a few hundred of his supporters. Now, Gaius Gracchus is different because he actually does want to solve problems. He actually does come up with a series of issue, a series of proposals um, that can address some of the consequences of inequality. So he wants to give land to um, dispossessed people. He wants to give food support to poor to poor Romans. Um, he really does have proposals that he wants to bring about, but because his last name is Gaia, is Gracchus, uh, and because his family has this history of being adversarial, these policy proposals are seen not as solutions to a problem so much as they're seen as more expressions of anger and more expressions of discontent. Uh, and so the reaction to him is similar to the reaction to his brother, and he also ends up being killed. And so the significance of the two Gracchi brothers um, are that this is the first time violence is used to solve a problem in the Republic. You know, this old model um, of staking your claim uh, and looking for a compromise solution that respects the lives, property, uh, and legal rights of everyone this is what the Republic has worked off of for nearly 400 years. And when the Gracchi start behaving in this way and their opponents start reacting violently, this undercuts the basic principles for how Rome's Republic is supposed to work. Uh, and this stops being a system that encourages compromise and consensus building in a way that strengthens everybody's participation uh, and everybody's agreement with the solutions that are, are created. This instead breaks the system apart creates division, and also, most importantly, creates martyrs. Um, and it's very hard to compromise when people have died for the idea that you might be signing away. Mm -hmm. So could we say that the Greki brothers play the role in the decline of the Roman Republic? 
I think it's a really significant role. And if you look at all of the ancient sources that talk about this, that's where they pinpoint the moment. Um, the death of Gaius Gra or of Tiberius Gracchus is the moment that Cicero, that Plutarch, that Cassius Dio, that Appian, I mean, all of the historians who write about this, that's the moment they pick as, okay, this is a point of inflection. Now the Republic is not going to work like it has before. At the moment, Romans were shocked by what happened, but they also didn't want to believe that their Republic was really under threat. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, what Romans are very able to do is to say, okay, this happened, it's really bad, um, but we'll move forward. And after the murder of the Gracchi, there actually is a temple to the goddess Concordia, you know, the goddess of, of agreement and uh, good relationships that's built in the Roman forum by one of the people responsible for this murder um, as a way to say, yes, now we're moving on. Um, the reality, of course, is once politics becomes this kind of a discussion, where consensus is not prized um, and where the goal is not to come up with a policy everybody can agree with, but instead um, the goal is to incite your followers to such a degree that you win absolutely, um, it, you can't very easily go back because your followers don't expect you to compromise. Uh, in a sense, your followers will penalize you if you compromise. And so the model that had guided the political deliberations in Rome for four centuries it breaks down. Uh, and instead you have politicians who are very eager to exploit division um, and use violence if that's something that can help their career. And it's not all Roman politicians. Not all of them are violent. Most of them are not violent. But a few of them explore the, explore the advantages that can come from violence. And they become more and more sophisticated in how they use violence uh, and how tactics of violence and intimidation can influence Roman decision-making. And so this becomes a kind of political technology that the Gracchi pioneered in a very, um, and the Tiberius Gracchus pioneered in a very unsophisticated way, uh, but people realize it works. And so people become more and more sophisticated in how they use violence and intimidation. Uh, and it becomes more and more of a feature of how Roman politics is working. Another very prominent figure in Roman history is, of course, Julius Caesar. So could you tell us about him and, I mean, what, are, what were some of the main events where he had a participation? Uh, and, I mean, basically what he changed in terms of the political dynamics in Rome? Yeah, I think this dynamic of violence and intimidation is something we have to understand as, as always playing in the background of what Caesar is up to. Um, because when Caesar is young, there's a civil war where the dictator Sulla wins the civil war and Caesar's family is very closely aligned with the losing side of that civil war. And so Caesar's father loses his property. Um, Caesar, who was married to a member of the family of one of the leading politicians on the other side of that civil war is asked by Sulla to divorce his wife. Um, and Caesar refuses to do this. But the, the experience of being on the wrong side of a civil war and the wrong side of political violence deeply influences Caesar for his entire career. Uh, and so what you see with Caesar is a, um, a very ambitious person who understands the appeal of popular politics and populist politics. Uh, he understands his family has a very strong connection to this. 
He understands the fact that he can advertise his own family's victimization uh, because of this political violence. But you also see in this a deep suspicion of the ability of the republic to actually protect anyone's interests when there is a conflict. And all of these things kind of figure into how Caesar behaves. Um, so he is incredibly ambitious. Uh, and he is very, very eager to use whatever means are available to enhance his position. And that means sometimes he uses politics of intimidation. But what you also see is a very firm line that Caesar takes, where he says, we should not break laws. We should not break conventions just because we disagree with somebody. Um, so in 63, there is a, a, revo a re revolt by a politician uh, and Cicero, the great Roman orator and statesman, arrests people who are associated with this revolt. And there's a debate in the Senate about whether you should kill these people um, without a trial. And Caesar says, you can't do this. Once you start doing this, no one has any rights. This will go in a really bad direction. And Caesar loses that discussion. Uh, and I think that underlines for Caesar the fact that you cannot trust these institutions to protect you. Uh, and so Caesar's later career sees him go and conquer Gaul, uh, conquer what's now basically modern France and Belgium and parts of Switzerland. Um, he comes back a very wealthy and powerful man, uh, and he's asked to dismiss his army before he's able to get any kind of guarantee that he's not going to be prosecuted politically for what he's done in the past. And Caesar doesn't trust that the Republic will protect his interests. Uh, and so he refuses to do this because he doesn't believe uh, that the laws in the Republic are strong enough to ensure that he is going to be protected. And ultimately, this is why Caesar starts the civil war with the Senate. Um, in 49 BC, Caesar takes his army from Gaul and invades Italy. Uh, and Caesar's own source, Caesar's own account of the civil war says he did this because he was afraid that laws no longer applied. Um, but then the interesting second part of Caesar is when Caesar wins victories in these civil wars, he doesn't kill the people who are on the other side. He pardons them. Uh, and, and there you see again this incredibly ambitious person, someone who's willing to fight a civil war so that he can be in charge of Rome, but also this principle of we are not going to just wholesale kill our opponents because that's wrong. Um, and of course, this is what gets Caesar assassinated a number of those people that Caesar pardons end up killing him. Uh, and so with Caesar, you have this incredibly complicated figure who on the one hand um, understands the basic principles of how the Republic should work and understands that these principles are no longer in place. Um, but he also acts in a way that is very self-serving to enhance his own prestige and enhance his own position. Uh, and so with Caesar, I think you have a very complicated figure who on one level you could see as almost heroic. I mean, he gives his life or he he loses his life because of principles that he had been advocating for um, for a very long time. But he also, of course, creates conditions that make the Republic unsustainable. Uh, and so it's very hard as a historian to evaluate exactly where you should put Caesar. Is he a villain? Is he a tragic hero? Um, is he a little bit of both? Uh, and so I think Caesar in some ways is just, he's one of these remarkable figures uh, that it's, it makes a lot of, it's very profitable to try to puzzle through exactly what's going on. Yeah, and probably compare him with other modern politicians, let's say. But before we get into that, 
Uh, he was officially the first emperor, correct? No, he has a different position. Oh, so okay. what's is he he takes the position of dictator, which is a legal title. It's a legal position mm -hmm. in the Roman Republic, but it's a position that you're supposed to have for at most six months. And he okay. takes this office multiple times. And then eventually at the end of his life, he has himself declared declare dictator for life, perpetual dictator. And this is what precipitates his assassination. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't take the title emperor. Um, okay. He's framing his position as this Republican constitutional position that he's just extending for much longer than you're supposed to have it. Um, and it's under his it's under his nephew who becomes the, the first Emperor Augustus that you have someone sit down and say, I'm going to create a completely new type of position that's going to enable me to run the run the Roman state in this particular fashion. What Caesar was doing was he was taking an existing office uh, and he was saying, I am going to hold this office forever uh, and I'm going to exercise the powers this office allows me to exercise forever. Uh, and so what you have is a kind of bastardization of the Republican Constitution. So legally, he's still working under the constitutional framework of the Republic. Um, he's just basically breaking down all of the limits that that constitutional framework should put on somebody to do what he's doing. Yeah. Is there any moment in Rome's history where we can talk about democracy in any way or not? Uh, pure democracy, no. Um, pure democracy like you have in Athens, you, you wouldn't be able to find in Rome. But in all honesty, you won't find that in the modern world either. Um, because pure democracy requires, it, it has a limit to how big a society can actually be. Yes. So in Athens, um, that's about as big as a, a pure democracy can be. Because the Athenian assembly, um, the space in which they assembled could not hold many more people than you actually than you actually had in there. And so Athenian pure democracy requires everybody in the citizen body to participate in every decision that's put before the citizen body. Uh, and in Rome, Rome is just too big. Even when the Republic starts, Rome is just too big to do something like that. Um, but Romans wouldn't have wanted that either. They, they would have looked at that and said, this, this is crazy. Um, because everybody's vote counts the same. We don't want everybody's vote to count the same. We want to have a society where the people who are most important have more of a say in what goes on than the people who are less important. But they also valued the fact that everybody in the society should have a say. You know, every citizen counts. They just don't count the same. Uh, and to Romans, that's actually desirable. Um, where they would look at what Athens has and they would say, first, it wouldn't work for us because we're too big. Um, we can't, we could never have, I mean, by the time Caesar takes power, there's probably 6 million people in Italy. You could never have any kind of political, you know, pure democracy that had all of those people taking part in it. Um, but the other side is they wouldn't want it anyway. But I think when we're talking in a modern context about democracy, we're really talking about representative democracy. Uh, and that the Romans did have. And they believe very strongly in the idea of a representative democracy that's governed by the participation of all of the people, uh, all of the citizens. Um, and the, the 
I think the fundamental like way this is described best is Cicero describing the Republic as the res publica res populi s. The Republic is a thing that belongs to the people. Um, and then Cicero goes on to say the people are not like an ethnic thing. It's a political group that comes together with a basic agreement that they are all collaborating in the rules and the success of the entity they belong to. And so the Republic has to belong to everybody. And in that sense, I think that's what a modern democracy also says. Um, a modern representative democracy says, this is a system and a political entity that belongs to everyone. And we all have both a role to play in how decisions are made, but we also have obligations to that state to pay taxes or serve in the army um, or to do public service or whatever it is the state is asking of us we not only have a role in deciding how the state functions, but we also need to give something back to the state because the state is ensuring our prosperity and our protection. And that's a modern idea that is also a Roman idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is very interesting. So before we get into the parallels with our modern world, let me just ask you another question. So uh, we talk about the Roman Republic and then the Roman Empire. But since Rome had already conquered other peoples, I, I mean, couldn't we talk about the Roman Republic, even though it had a different political structure, let's say, as an empire already before emperors come in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Republic in the last phases of the Republic it looks almost like a 19th century European empire, mm -hmm. um, where what you have is a system that's designed to exploit the provinces to make Italy richer. Mm -hmm. um, it very much is that system. And it's very hard for people in the provinces, if somebody's behaving unjustly, uh, to bring them to trial because it's a senator who's governing that province and the people who decide whether he's behaved badly are other senators. Uh, and so there are a few cases where somebody is so corrupt um, that there is a trial and they are actually found guilty, but it's very, very rare. Uh, and the very principle of the, the Republic's governance of the Mediterranean is to take whatever they can take from these people uh, without precipitating a rebellion. What's interesting is when you actually get to the empire, the emperors are more interested in the affairs of the provincials being justly administered than the Republic ever was. Uh, and so you have a, a text from the historian Tacitus that is exactly right. He says that the provincials are excited that Augustus has become emperor because now there's someone to whom they can appeal who has their interests in mind, a higher authority than the Senate. And so if you live in Italy, you don't really, I mean, you don't really uh, like the idea of losing your political freedom. You're willing to do it because the late Republic has collapsed so badly, but there are things you have lost. If you're in the provinces, there is nothing you have lost. In fact, you've actually gained the protection of an emperor who's interested in these provinces being administered well. Uh, and so as you move from the representative democracy of the Republic to the autocracy of the empire, in Italy, your conditions have changed maybe for the worse. In the provinces, there is no doubt your conditions are better. And this is what sets the empire on this path um, over 200 years to making everybody Roman citizens because the emperors are more and more responsive to the provinces and the emperors come from the provinces. 
uh, starting in starting in the year 98, emperors don't really come from Italy anymore. Um, the whole string of emperors that you get after the year 98 for nearly 150 years, um, they are of descent from Spain and from France and from Tunisia uh, and from Syria. Uh, and so you actually have under the empire a sort of move towards making the provinces fully Roman that couldn't have happened under the Republic because the Republic was an Italian political entity that was exploiting and benefiting from control of basically the entire Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Are there any important similarities that you would like to point to between Roman, the Roman Republic and our modern day republics and that perhaps could allow us to take some lessons from this part of history? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I can speak broadly about this and I can also speak specifically about this as someone living in the US right now. I think broadly what we can take away is that republic, republics are in a sense organisms. You know, they, they are fragile. Um, they don't last forever and they require sustenance. People need to be invested in those republics and they need to understand what a republic is. You know, as a citizen, you have rights in a republic. The republic is supposed to protect them. Um, it's supposed to do certain things for you, but you are supposed to do certain things for it too. And one of those things is to look for look at the health of that state and understand that a republic works best when it's governed by consensus and compromise. And one of the obligations of citizens in a republic is to acknowledge this, you know, to understand that their system is based on this idea of compromise and consensus building. Um, and this idea that as many people's voices as can be represented in a piece of legislation or a decision should be represented in that piece of legislation or decision, because that's what makes a society strong. And I think that's something that a lot of people living in representative democracies, be it you know the Philippines or Turkey or the United States, it's something we've lost. Uh, this sense that we have an obligation as citizens to promote compromise, because that's what our state requires. Now, in the United States, I think there's another dynamic that's particularly alarming, and this is the use of political violence in not only breaking down the willingness to create consensus, but also trying to break down the basic functioning of citizens using their voices in a Republican context. Um, and, and this is, I think, what alarms me most about what's going on in the U.S. right now in, in 2020. Um, you have people who are openly calling for this. You know, for openly calling for people who are armed to come and try to intimidate voters. That's what Tiberius Gracchus did. Mm -hmm. um, that's what put Rome on this path to destruction. Uh, intimidation and preventing people from exercising their votes leads to violence. It might not immediately lead to violence, but it will lead to violence. And I think leaders need to understand how dangerous this is how antithetical to a representative democracy any kind of call for political violence or any kind of support for political violence actually is. Uh, and that's of a different scale than defending your republic and promoting compromise. Um, when you are having discussions about whether political violence has a place in the public arena, you're talking about whether you have a republic anymore. Uh, and I think in the United States, people are beginning to awaken to this, but not everybody. Uh, and that's that's particularly alarming.
-hmm. Yeah. So just two last questions that will be a yeah. little bit more general about uh, the discipline of history. So uh, is there in history any great man or great system uh, encompassing theory, let's say? So, for example, we talked about uh, Tiberius Gracchus, Julius Caesar, and so on. Uh, and sometimes it seems that uh, historians approach things as if uh, things happened, main events and big important events happened in history, uh, because certain political figures provoked them, let's say, or caused them. Uh, but there are also other approaches that look more into the conditions where people lived, how the political system was organized, the economic and social circumstances and things like that. So, I mean, is, is there is one better than the other and where do you position yourself? Yeah, I think that you have really put your finger on the most fundamental question that historians are, are struggling with right now. Mm -hmm. um, because there really is a question about whether individuals or systems dictate change and determine how society is going to evolve. And I think that this is something where there's a dynamic between them, where individuals, when systems are weak, are able to really drive historical change in very significant ways. Um, but generally, there's also a reaction to that. And then systems are built to try to prevent this from happening. So I think in, in the Roman context, the best example of this is probably Augustus, because Augustus is both an individual who uh, basically arise, arrives at a moment when this Republican system in Rome is failing, uh, takes advantage of this, creates a completely new political structure, changes Roman society completely, and then recognizes that he needs to build a system. And so what Augustus does in the first part of his career is benefit from the collapse of the Republican system that's supposed to constrain individuals uh, and he understands this. And I think this is what's so remarkable. He understands that the collapse of that system is a problem. He benefited from it, but he also understands that as the person who's now in charge, he needs another system or someone else will rise up and overthrow him. And so I think with Augustus, what you see is a figure who basically puts his finger on this very question that, that you just raised. Um, he gets that the political system that made Rome stable um, and prevented individuals from coming to power and dominating it has failed. He understands that he is the person who benefited from this. Um, he understands on some level that he precipitated its final failure. And he understands that a system needs to be put in place so that nothing like that happens again. Um, and, and I think that what we struggle with right now is um, the post-war system that was set up after 1945 to restrict and restrain the development of and the emergence of really um, powerful individuals who changed the dynamics in the world, this system now looks like it's starting to crumble. And across the United States and Europe, you have people who are completely dissatisfied with the fact that this system is here. Uh, and there's a real danger that you will get another individual or set of individuals who will come forward and take advantage of the collapse of this system. And I think this, this took historians by surprise. 
Um, I mean, going back to the 1990s, when you look at like Francis Fukuyama's uh, work talking about the end of history, you know, his idea is the system won. Um, you know, the, the, the space for these really dramatic changes is now gone because the system won. And now 30 years later, the system didn't win. Uh, and what do we do in a situation where the systems that were designed to guide change in a way that has specific guardrails have broken down? Uh, and what will change look like when these systems aren't there to restrain it? Uh, the Roman example, I think, suggests that these systems are really important. Uh, and Rome was, in a way, lucky that Augustus understood the need to replace the system he broke um, with something new that was sustainable. Um, because the other ancient example of an individual who did this kind of thing is Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great destroyed a world system by conquering the Persian Empire. But he had no interest in building anything that would work afterwards. And what ended up happening was basically the separation or the division of the Persian Empire into these competing states that fought each other for like 300 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about the role that ideas play in history? There are people that say that ideas play a big role. Then on the other camp, and perhaps here we can talk a little bit about the Marxists, right? That say that basically history is made by the material conditions people live in. Uh, and uh, I mean, about ideas, it's also interesting that um, even though there are people that write books and so on saying that the ideas of the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, uh, back in Rome, the Greeks and so on, were really behind uh, the development of Western society. But then we have to have disciplines like history and even social sciences to understand why things changed and why society is organized in different ways. So, I mean, it seems that people are not really that aware of what are the forces behind their actions and they can only look back to try to understand what really uh, made history move forward, let's say. I think that um, I think that the role of ideas is, is very important in this, I mean, in, in studying these changes. But I think that the, the challenge with ideas is somebody has to activate them. Um, you know, I, ideas can exist for a very long time and be very appealing as kind of abstractions or even as things that, that dictate an individual's way of life. Um, but they can also be activated in a way that causes tremendous disruption or even violence and, and damage. Um, and so an idea, I think a, a, maybe a good example of this is that, um, you know, in the Roman context, the idea of liberty is something that Romans advertise as like the central virtue of what their state is for really long, I mean, for centuries, right? From the time that the Republic starts in 509 BC um, through even emperors are putting this on their coins, celebrating the liberty of the public. Um, but liberty means something different to all of these different people at different moments. And sometimes liberty is an innocuous thing that says, um, where a Roman will say, in essence, liberty means that we exist in a state where we vote and we decide the laws. 
In other contexts, you have emperors say liberty exists as something that justifies me killing somebody else. Um, and that idea hasn't changed. That idea is still powerful. Uh, and that idea is something that's still like every Roman for all of the Republic will agree with the principle that the, the Republic should be a free state and that liberty is important. But sometimes you'll have someone like the dictator Sulla come in and say, well, our liberty is endangered by these people and we need to protect our liberty by killing these people. Um, in some cases, you'll even have like Brutus, the assassin of Caesar, who earlier in his career uh, stands out as an advocate for liberty. And he means liberty as Romans living freely under the laws that Romans have agreed to implement and agreed to set. Uh, when Caesar takes over as dictator, he legally is empowered to be dictator. Romans have agreed to this. By the standards that Brutus has set for liberty, um, he's living in a society that's protecting liberty. But Brutus finds Caesar's dictatorship something that is unbearable and not consistent with liberty and, and decides to assassinate him. So in that sense, what Brutus has done is he's taken an idea and he's used it to justify really radical political change. Um, he's used it to justify quite literally murder um, and murder of someone who legally uh, has a position that has been agreed to by the Romans according to the very terms that Brutus has set out as, as liberty. And so I think when we're talking about ideas, there are great thinkers who create new ideas. Um, and sometimes those ideas are inspiring on a personal level and they never get activated in the bigger sort of way of directing political change or religious change or you know, personal change. They exist simply in, in conditioning or changing or reshaping the way that people think. Um, in other cases, and I think the, the philosopher Pythagoras is a great example of this, ideas that start as personal practice get kind of extended out as ideas that have political implications. And so Pythagoras creates a philosophical system that on its very basic level guides how people behave individually. But it also provides a structure for how communities could be governed. And a number of cities in Southern Italy actually adopt a kind of Pythagorean approach to governance. And so this idea that started as an individual thinking about how individuals could function eventually gets activated in this bigger way as a structure for, for um, creating basically hierarchies and creating sort of principles for governing society. And so I think that this is where the, the, in, the individual thinker um, is a particularly challenging thing for historians to capture um, because ideas that can be really inspirational and really powerful might only exist on the level of the person. Um, but they might also eventually later get activated in this really significant way that the individual who started thinking these ideas never imagined was possible. Um, and, and I think that's one of the challenges that we face in figuring out, again, this question of the, the powerful individual versus the system. When those ideas get activated to reshape society, who has done it? Is it an individual? Um, is it a system that gradually incorporates the thinking of a lot of people who've adopted this idea? Um, is it a little bit of both? Uh, and, and I think in the Roman world, you know, a good example of maybe a little bit of both is Christianity, where this starts out as an idea that influences individuals and it affects how individuals approach 
the divine. It affects how individuals function in their communities. But eventually, when the Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity, you have an individual who has taken this idea that has primarily existed on a personal level, and this becomes a policy decision. Um, and it's a policy decision that reshapes the way the Roman Empire is going to function for the next 1,100 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as an historian, uh, I think this is a very interesting question to ask you. Uh, does history really repeat itself? I mean, I've asked you earlier about some of the similarities between the Roman Republic and modern-day republics, but those are the similarities in terms of the political systems. But uh, do events repeat themselves? Is history circular in any way or not? Um, I think what you can say is that history doesn't directly repeat itself, but history provides us with tools to think about and think with um, and, and ways to imagine possible outcomes for events and uh, things that happen in the world that, you know, we as our as individuals living our lives have never seen before. Um, and so, you know, something like the pandemic, none of us have lived through anything like this. We don't really know what its course will be like. We don't really know what a good response to it would be or what we know what a bad response looks like. But um, but I think that, you know, history provides lots and lots of ways to think about how a society responds to these kinds of challenges. Uh, and what happens if you don't respond well? And so history gives us a way to think about the future and understand the present. Uh, and that, that way to think about the future is something um, that I think only history can really provide because it gives you a set of alternatives and it gives you a set of tools to think with and it gives you a set of possibilities you might not have otherwise imagined. Uh, and so there are going to be things always that are different in the present from the conditions of the past that you want to look at. Uh, and the Roman Republic, for example, is very, very different from modern republics in a lot of ways. But structurally, the main kind of things the Republic wants to do are things that our republics want to do as well. And so thinking through the implications of certain challenges while uh, looking at something like the Roman Republic, th this allows us to understand some things that we might not otherwise think about because our republics are not as old as Rome. Uh, and so they don't have the same life cycle. And we might be at a point where the events that are going on right now um, can be understood better by looking at similar events in Rome, and not because they're the same, but because there's structural similarities that mean that the outcome we saw in Rome might be the outcomes that um, we should be aware could happen here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so would you like to give us a teaser for your next book, the book that is coming out next year, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome? So the idea in that book is that uh, one of the things Romans talk about as a political idea for the entire history of the Roman world, and then people talk about for 600 years after the end of the Roman world, is that Rome is in decline. Uh, and this is used um, repeatedly by Romans to try to identify people or actions or ideas that cause the decline and push for a radical renewal, um, a sort of make Rome great again move, where you, you in essence say, this is the problem we're having, these people caused it, 
And we need to do this radical thing against these people to stop it. Uh, and so in the Republic, you see this used to justify xenophobia. You see it used to justify um, anti-intellectualism. You see it used to justify moves against the property of the rich, uh, moves against the rights of the poor. Uh, in the empire, you see this used to justify killing other emperors. But occasionally what you see is something that's even more interesting, where Roman politicians, who, especially emperors, who are comfortable in their position, speak about Roman decline and they speak about Roman renewal, but they don't blame anybody. Uh, they just say that a strong society fixes what's wrong with itself. And it's not anybody's fault. It's just something that we do. And so for most of Roman history, this rhetoric of decline is used to say something is wrong, somebody's responsible, and let's do something to them. But occasionally, and that, of course, it destroys society. It breaks down social bonds. Um, it, it creates all sorts of terrible conditions and terrible reactions. But when you have someone say, this is wrong, and a good society fixes this, and it's our, just our job as a good society to fix this, it actually builds up social cohesion and it builds up society. And so this rhetoric of, of renewal and this rhetoric of decline is something that is often destructive. And we're seeing this now and we've seen it multiple times in the 20th century. Um, but it doesn't always need to be destructive. And I think maybe if you look at some of the, you know, the, some of the stories told in Europe in the middle of the 20th century, um, you know, the miracle of, of Italy's economic development or the miracle of Germany's post-war development. This is a story that makes you feel good about creating something out of the ruins of something before. And so the, the book looks at how people use this rhetoric. Um, when it's used to destroy things, who are the victims? Um, and, and what does that say about how we in a modern context should understand rhetoric that talks about decline and tries to make victims out of other people. Uh, but it also says sometimes this is constructive and thinking about decline and renewal in a way that says we all can make something better together actually makes society stronger. And Rome shows us both of those things. It shows us this idea as something that is intensely destructive, but also as something that is really constructive. Uh, and so the book is asking us to look at this across 2200 years and see that um, this rhetoric is always there. Uh, people always use it. There's not, you know, there's not even a decade in history where someone is not doing this in some context. But it doesn't always need to be destructive. And there's a positive way to think about social change um, and even social problems that can make society stronger. Uh, and Rome shows us that there's real benefit to embracing the positive way of thinking about this and a real cost if that's what we don't do. Yeah. Okay, so Dr. Watts, before we go, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, so I um, mainly am, well, I'm working on a podcast eventually that should come out in 2021. Uh, but right now, the main way you can track me down is through my academia.edu page, and you can find some of my books there. Um, and otherwise, uh, my department webpage. 
Yeah, okay, so I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box and also, of course, to the book Mortal Republic. And let me leave also an invitation on the table to come again on the show next year when the new book is out, because I think it will also be a very interesting conversation. And thank you for taking the time. For sure. I will love to come back. Thanks again. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel almost three years ago and I would really like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page or PayPal uh, because I need your support and any amount starting from $1 would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perarga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windager, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Thiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, and Tom Roth. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran. And my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.